such a powerful way. And it is a disservice to the church when these hymns are not part of the church's repertoire. Uh, this is certain, certainly one of them. Today, friends, we conclude our series on the prophet Habakkuk. We've been here for a little bit under two months, and it has been a blessing to my soul, as I hope it has been to yours as well. Uh, next week, if the Lord wills, and if my daughter doesn't arrive before, we'll start the Gospel of Mark. Here's our sermon text for today, Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive tree fail, and the fields yield no fruit, no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The choir master with strings instruments. For 14 years, I taught music lessons as I worked bivocationally in ministry. In 14 years, you meet a lot of interesting students. And you kind of remember your students according to how well or how poorly they handled their practice at home. There are the students who barely practiced during the week and showed up to class with a little bit of progress from the previous week. And then there are the students who only practice about 30 minutes before class, trying to cram in as much progress as possible before the deadline. And if you left at that, that's probably because you've done that in the past. And then there are the students who viewed their private lessons as their only opportunity to practice during the week. As the music teachers in the room would probably understand, these are the students that caused a music teacher to reconsider their career on a weekly basis. But there's another category of students. The students that diligently practice throughout the week, they show up to lesson prepared, ready to learn something new. These students are not necessarily the most talented, although often they are. These students are the students who are disciplined. Discipline beats talent every time. These students are what keep music teachers teaching music. But among the disciplined students, there is a special group of students. And among all the students that I taught throughout the years, only the students in this category went on to pursue music professionally. They're not just talented. These students are not just disciplined. This group is the group of students who find joy 
in music. They love music. They find themselves delighted and satisfied in practicing, in lessons, and in performance. They practice not because they had enough time. They made time to practice. They practice not because they wanted a passing grade. They earned that and so much more. They practice not because they wanted to please their parents. They practice because music pleased them. And there is an incredible parallel here with the spiritual life. Christianity is a joy-driven religion. We flourish not based on our talents. We flourish not based on our discipline, but we flourish ultimately based on our delights. Discipline alone will take us to mere religions, but delights will take us to a real relationship with God. So here's my main thought for today. Genuine believers look not to self or circumstances to live by faith. Instead, they look to be filled with joy and strength in God. So this is our last sermon on Habakkuk. For some of you, this has been your first chance just diving into this incredible book. Some of you might have been very familiarized with this book, but as we wrap it up, let's just review really quickly where we are, and then we'll continue from there. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah right before the Babylonians invaded their land. Israel was utterly sinful during the times of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk pleaded to God for justice for justice to come on his people. God responds, and he says, I am a God of justice, and I will bring my justice. And how will God exercise justice over his people? He will bring upon his people the violence, godless, the idolatrous Babylonians. And yet, in the midst of judgment, God promises mercy. He calls his people to live by faith. Trust that the God of wrath is also the God of mercy. Last week we saw God spending judgment on Babylon. As Habakkuk penned this chapter, which is a psalm, We're going to finish today, and the last thing we heard from Habakkuk last week is that he was actually going to remain silent as he waits for the justice of God. So Habakkuk has been silent for seven days, and today he will speak again as we pick up in verse 17. So what does Habakkuk say? What what, what does Habakkuk say in light of God's pending judgment. Well, Habakkuk, first of all, speaks of the reality of hardship. 
During the times of Habakkuk, Israel was largely an agrarian society. Their economy and their lives depended on, on what the land produced. But Habakkuk knew that disobedience to God would result not in covenantal blessings, but in covenantal curses. Habakkuk knew that if the people who was in covenant with God did not keep their covenant, they would experience scarcity in the land. God tells Israel, you're going to go into a land not like the land of Egypt, which depends on irrigation. You're going to dwell in a land where the water is going to come from the skies. I'm the one who makes that land prosperous. But God is also the one who can withhold prosperity. As God is reaffirming his law with Israel in Deuteronomy 11, he says this to his people. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, Israel, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly of the good land that the Lord is giving you. You see, this judgment that God is about to bring upon Israel should be no surprise for Israel. It is the promise of God for a disobedient people. In verse 17, we see a little bit of a progression. We see fig trees and we see vines that are not flourishing. Fig trees and vines are nice things, right? They're sweet. They're like candy. They're like a treat. But they're not ultimately necessary for survival. We know what it's like to forego some of the, some of the nice things, right? We saw, we saw some places we love to go to or attend uh, be shut down because of a virus just a couple of years ago. The economy right now is tight. Most of us are probably being more careful about things like eating out or buying things that are not necessary. But at the end of the day, in general, we're doing okay. Our needs are met, generally speaking. But then we see the olive tree. Olives are not just for pleasure, they're for necessity. Olives are a great source of food. They are an important good fat that should be part of diet. But they also produce olive oil, which was used for medicinal purposes. Olive oil was used for the anointing of priests. 
olive oil was used as a currency. And then we see flocks and herds. Significant sources of food. One cow will feed a family for a whole year. Sheep will provide clothing. But also, these animals were used as sacrifices in the temple. Habakkuk here is not talking about just the nice things in life being withheld from Israel. Habakkuk is talking about a complete societal collapse. Israel, the people of God, was about to see the deconstruction of all things that made them secure, their economy and their religion. Friends, life is hard. And one of the reasons why the Bible is so powerful is because it does not sugarcoat the hardships of life. God did not lie to His people about the pending judgment. God likes realism. God speaks the truth. Realism leads us to admit that life is filled with hardship and God's people is not spared from seasons of significant suffering in this life. Some may come to Christianity believing that it is an invitation to a life that is free of suffering. But this experience would be disappointing. A simple look at the world around us shows us that non-Christians often prosper more than Christians. And by worldly standards, Christians often do not prosper. At times we can feel tempted to view the world like the psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 3. It says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why? Why is the wicked prosperous? And so very often the believer is not the answer is they are actually not prosperous the difference is that the reward of the wicked is experienced in this life remember the rich man and Lazarus but the reward of the believer is experienced in eternity we live awaiting our blessed hope We live in suffering knowing that one day suffering for the believer will be no more. Imagine two people running a marathon. After the first mile, one of these two people see a lemonade stand and says, Great, my suffering is over. I will enjoy a lemonade and celebrate my victory. The other person says, the end has not yet arrived. I will forego the lemonade. At the end of the race, I will have 
all the lemons and lemonades my heart wants. Which person is right now, early on in the race, experiencing an appearance prosperity? Which person is experiencing suffering? Which person would you rather be? Friends, this is an analogy of the Christian life. We can look at the world and say, I would rather the pleasures of the world. But when we pursue the pleasures of the world, we forsake the race of heaven. We forsake eternal life. Forego the refreshment. Forego the rest. Forego the pleasures. Look to Christ. And run the race with endurance. Friends, what we see as the prosperity of the wicked in this life is always an illusion. True prosperity never precedes eternity. True prosperity always comes at the other end of eternity. In heaven, everyone will be prosperous. Suffering is common to men. Suffering is particularly common to those who fear God. The, the call to follow God is a call to suffering. The call to follow God is a call to endure in pain. Our Lord Jesus says in Luke 14, 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. What Jesus means here is not that sometimes we're going to have an inconvenient week or an inconvenient day. What Jesus means is that our life will be marked by inconvenience because over and over again, we must say, not my will, but yours be done in my life. And often when we say that, God says, okay, suffer. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 14, 21, right after he stoned outside of Lystra and left for dead, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The door that leads, the gates that lead to the kingdom are filled with tribulation. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, not if, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Apostle John greets the churches in Revelation 1-9 this way, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance there are in Jesus. The testimony of the Bible is clear. We live in an age of suffering. The church age is an age of suffering. We shouldn't be surprised by seasons of hardship. On the contrary, seasons of ease should break the norm. This is the contrary of what the very popular and infamous prosperity gospel preaches, isn't it? The prosperity gospel says if you have enough faith, 
If you give enough money, if you say the right things, you will experience health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. The book of Habakkuk is an antidote to the prosperity gospel. In Habakkuk, the people of God is promised suffering, sorrow, scarcity. In the book of Habakkuk, prosperity is not experienced by the people of God, but instead they experience need. God's providence on us is not according to our wisdom, but according to His wisdom. He gives us what we need and often withholds what we want. But He does it so that we can be with Him for eternity. God never gives us pain without purpose. He never gives us affliction without an agenda. God has a purpose for the suffering, for the need that we have in this life. And God uses those very things to cause us to persevere in our pursuit of Him. Sometimes what God will withhold from us is health. Sometimes He will withhold wealth. Sometimes He will withhold prosperity, relationships, children, marriage, job, a raise. Sometimes to be blessed means to lack those things. Sometimes God will bring into our lives financial hardship, accidents, brokenness, sickness, cancer, death. Why? Because we need these things in order to enter the kingdom. Friends, prosperity for the believer will only come fully in eternity. In this life, it has been appointed for us to suffer. So the calling is, let us suffer well. Let us suffer with faith. But what does it mean and what does it look like to suffer well? Well, let's continue here. Habakkuk then goes on to talk to us about the source of joy. Joy, unlike mere happiness, is a permanent state that does not depend on circumstances around us. The first word in verse 17 is connected to the first word in verse 18. In verse 17, Habakkuk says, Though, he goes on to describe the circumstances, though my circumstance is precarious, though everything around me is lacking, verse 18, yet, you see, 
Circumstances are not determining the heart of the prophet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That is the response of a believer in light of suffering. Suffering comes, joy in the Lord is overwhelmed. Overwhelms the being, the person. There is a resolution here in the heart of the prophet, isn't there? It's a resolution of faith. The prophet is resolved not to let circumstances, the circumstances of his life, determine the attitude of his heart. Paul would call this walking by faith and not by sight. This, friends, is the application of the central verse in this short book. The righteous shall live by his faith and not by his circumstances. Friends, a faith-filled life is a life that is characterized by joy. But what is joy? Joy is a complete satisfaction in the Lord regardless of life's circumstances. Joy is being able to say, God is enough. You know, in the midst of many years of infertility uh, that my wife and I experienced and, and, and longing for something good that we thought, Forever the Lord with, would withhold from us, we learn to say this, Christ is enough. I, if we have Christ, we lack nothing. We're not incomplete because the Lord seems to be withholding from us a child. And friends, I could only genuinely, honestly say Christ is an all enough because I experience need. And lack. I don't think that God is enough because He has blessed us now with children. That would be true. That was true 10 years into infertility. And it would be too if it was 50. I recognize that children is a blessing. The Lord has blessed us. And yet, we learned all along that our satisfaction in the Lord was not based on our circumstances. Joy is also a complete dissatisfaction with everything that seeks to rival God's throne in our heart. So the positive aspect is a satisfaction in the Lord. The negative aspect is a dissatisfaction with anything that tries to be God. With, with any pleasure that tries to impart life. Joy is also a gift that the Lord gives us in His Spirit. So if it is a gift and we're lacking joy, you know what we can do? We can pray and ask, Lord, give me the gift of joy. But though joy is a gift, joy is also an imperative for the Christian life. There is no such thing as a joyless Christian. Christians may struggle with joy. But Christians will always experience joy because Christians have in themselves the spirit of joy. Joy is a commandment for every believer. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice, that's a commandment. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So it is not okay for Christians to live in the swamp of despondency. Christians must fight for joy. Notice again in verse 18 that the joy Habakkuk speaks of rests not in Habakkuk, but in the Lord and in the God of his salvation. Habakkuk knew that he was about to face the, great, the greatest hardship of his life. But Habakkuk's eyes were set beyond the pending Babylonian exile. Habakkuk's eyes were in eternity, in the salvation God would provide. In the salvation God always provides at the end. Friends, one of my greatest concerns as a pastor is not that you will find joy in ungodly things. You know, that's sometimes too obvious. And, and Christians tend to often fend that off well. Not always. But my greatest concern as a pastor is that you will find joy in things that are good, but not ultimate. A glass of lemonade is not a bad thing. Stopping the race of faith is deadly. You know, the, the people who are hardest to evangelize are not the people who are most sinful. Prison ministries are often very fruitful. That's actually easy because the sinful is quite aware of their need for salvation. The hardest people to evangelize are those who are morally upright. Why? Because they find joy in things that are good but not ultimate. The hardest people to evangelize are those who wake up Sunday morning, get, in, get dressed, get into their cars, and go to church, sing the songs, read the Bible, hear the sermon. But in their hearts, they're saying, thank you because I am not like him. It, it is those who look at their lives and say, I am sufficient my morality is enough. My goodness is enough. Certainly the Lord will receive me. We must be able to cry out to God and declare Him to be the only source of our salvation. The only source of our satisfaction. A few minutes ago I mentioned Psalm 73 where Asaph looks at the prosperity of the wicked and he's envious of it. Well, then Asaph goes on to realize that he is actually much more prosperous than the wicked. Why? Because not only, right, uh, he's, because he's not with, he does not have the earthly goods but instead, he has the heavenly 
reward with God. Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26, Asaph goes on to say, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For Asaph, God is enough. Friends, is this true of you? Are you ready to let go of all earthly things and pursue God alone? Are you able to say that there is nothing, nothing on earth that you desire besides God? Are you able to truly say in all circumstances, God is enough. God is sufficient. What hindrances are you clinging to? What earthly treasures are you holding on to that are stealing your joy and your ability to run the race in faith? A great misconception the world has of the Christian life is that Christianity is an invitation to a tedious, vexing, joyless life. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The reason why the world believes that there is joy outside of Christianity and no joy in Christianity is because they cannot discern spiritual things. The joy of the Lord is the means by which we come to enjoy all other things in life. It is when God unveils our eyes that we begin to see that earthly joys are nothing but lies. But when our hearts are transformed by God, our desires, our delights change. We, we are born with broken passions. By nature, we do not love what God would have us love. We're not inclined to pursue what God would have us pursue. And that is why the world loves earthly things. But God can change our nature. God can change our passions. God can change our desires. Once we are transformed, we begin loving what God loves. And then we come to understand that true, true pleasure is only really experienced in God, in His presence. There is no greater joy than the joy a Christian experiences not just from God but in God when Boaz was starting to walk it was fun to see him explore his environment he would walk around discover things and then he would look back trying to find his mom once he found her he would then proceed to explore more I pointed this out once to a neighbor as we were watching him outside. And the neighbor said, of course, she is the center of his universe. When he knows where she is, he feels secure. 
and she was right. Boaz really enjoyed exploring around, but he only enjoyed that as long as he was in the presence of his mom. That, that, is not, that wasn't always true of dad, by the way. His joy was ultimately determined not by the place he explored, but by the presence he found himself in. Even if you took him to his favorite place on earth, by the way, it's Chick-fil-A. Still is. That's probably good, he become a Christian. Even if you took him to his favorite place on earth, but you did not take him with his mom, you would despise that place. Because for him, presence trumps place. For him, presence yields pleasure. And that is true of the places he enjoyed. But that was also true of places he did not enjoy. Even the hardest places he could go to, even the hardest experiences his young three-year-old life has gone through, he would find ultimately pleasure in those places because of the presence of his mother. He would rather be in the doctor's office with his mother than at Chick-fil-A without her. Friends, this is a picture of Christian joy. This is a picture of a Christian's love for him who has purchased his salvation. The greatest evidence that one is a believer is not found in his discipline, but in his delight. Christians are not Christians because they read the Bible every day, although that's a wonderful thing. Christians are not Christians because they attend church Sunday after Sunday, although that's a great thing. Christians are not Christians because they give to the poor, although that's a great thing. Christians are not Christians because of what they do. Christians are Christians because of whom they delight in. And friends, why do we delight in Christ? Why do we have this supernatural experience with Christ? It is because Christ first loved us. Had Christ not loved us first, we would have never loved Him. Because it is not within us to love Christ. On the contrary, by nature, we hate Christ. By nature, we're enemies of the cross. And Christ died for His enemies. Christ died for you and I, friends, because we would never desire Him otherwise. It is only through Christ's death on the cross, through the application of that death on the cross, by the ministry of His Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we can look at the cross and say, I love my Savior. It is only through the work of the Spirit that sin is revealed to us, and we realize that the pleasures of the world are not enough 
they do not satisfy. Pleasures of the wor world do not feed the soul. It is only because Christ died and has put His Holy Spirit in us that we look to Him and we say, I am yours. Do with my life as you please. Your pleasure is my pleasure. And my pleasure is to do your will. Friends, if you don't have this relationship with Christ, where, where your heart is so inclined to do whatever He calls you to do, friends, that's because you have not come to Christ. It is because you have not confessed your sins to Christ. You have not told Christ, Lord, Lord, take over my heart. Change my heart. I've tried everything and I've come, up, I've come out empty. I've tried to transform my desires, but I can't. Lord, I need you to do something. When we confess our sins, our sins are forgiven. We're given a new person. We die with Christ in a baptism like His. And we're raised with Him to a new life, a life of new desires, a life of new pleasures. But friend, we could never do that if we hold on to our sins. We could never do that if we hold on to our desires and our own pleasures. We can only do that when we look to Christ and we recognize our sinfulness and we say, I believe you died in my place. I believe you died on my behalf. I believe only you can transform my broken, sinful, bound to depravity heart. Friend, have you done that? Have you come to Christ in faith? Have you professed your faith in Him? Are you clinging to the salvation only Christ provides? If you're not, your pleasure will only be for this life. For the life to come will be a life of condemnation because God provided a way for you and you rejected it. But if you have, but if you have, even the hardest lived life in this world will experience pleasures forevermore at the right hand of the Father. Friends, the day to come to Christ is right now. You're not assured tomorrow. You need to confess your sins and trust in Jesus' finished work today. Not tomorrow. Not this afternoon. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ and experience life and life abundant. God is the source of joy. He's also the source of strength. In verse 19, again, Habakkuk is clearly writing in the form of a psalm. The final words of the book is a musical instruction very common in the book of Psalms. But look at the theme of this verse. God, He, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In poetic language, Habakkuk, highlights the confidence the believer experiences in face of imminent suffering. And that confidence is not born within us. It is derived from God. God is the source of 
friends. It is the Lord, isn't he? The Lord is my strength. Habakkuk paints his weakness here with the image of a deer. Deers are vulnerable, aren't they? There is a reason why they're often hunted. But the deer here is a deer that dwells secure. The feet of this deer are swift, and this deer is not in the low country. This deer dwells in high places. This deer is protected. In this section, Habakkuk has been evoking memories of the Exodus. And in the Exodus, God fought for His people, Israel. And that is why Israel won. Not because Israel is mighty, but because the God who fights for Israel is mighty. So in Moses' song of victory in Right after the Exodus, he says, The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. So friends, this is a reminder that the confidence of a believer should never derive from his own strength, but instead from his dependence on the Lord. Just as it was in Egypt, Israel had no chance against his enemies. Here we find an Israel who is hopeless against Babylon. Unless, unless the Lord fought for Israel. Likewise, if the Lord is not your source of strength, if the Lord does not fight on your behalf, you will have no chance against the flesh, the devil, in the world. We live in a society that praises the strength of the individual, and this in many ways is, is not a bad thing. But friends, Christianity is not a religion for the strong. Christianity is a religion for the weak, because the strong is self-reliant, but the weak relies on God. The strong lives by his might, but the weak lives by his faith. Friends, there is no such thing as a strong Christian. The best Christians we know are best because they are weak and not strong. It is through weak vessels that God works most powerfully. The Apostle Paul once asked the Lord to remove a thorn on his side, but the words he hears from God are these, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in my weakness. So friends, if you're experiencing weakness, brokenness, suffering, pain in life right now, and you're coming to the Lord, you're actually experiencing grace. It is the paradox of Christian life. Through weakness, we are strong. Last week we saw a trembling prophet, a weak prophet. A prophet who had no confidence on himself. He knew the Babylonians were coming. And everything that made him secure was about to collapse. Today, we see a bold, strengthened, secure prophet. Only three verses later, such a drastic contrast. What has changed? 
his circumstances, his lot, his destiny, his enemies, no friends, nothing outside the prophet changed. The change took place within. The change was at the heart level. Before the prophet was looking at his enemies. But now the prophet is looking at his Savior. And I am today calling you to do the same. If you are weak, if you are suffering, if you are struggling, if the circumstances around you are difficult, challenging, look not at the enemy. Look at your Savior. Look to Christ, the Savior who stands before you on a cross, saying, come to me and live. The change we see in Habakkuk throughout this book is not the circumstances that surrounded him. The change we see in Habakkuk is a product of the faith that is within him. Habakkuk models to us in his own life the theme of this book. The righteous shall live by his faith. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, how we need your strength in our weakness. Oh, Father, how we need you to work in our hearts in such a way that we can know our frame and understand that when we recognize our weakness, we then are strong because of the grace that you impart. Father, teach us to grow. In our faith, as we saw it before our own eyes, Habakkuk grow. Help us, Lord, indeed live by faith. Lord, help us live trusting and believing the promises that are true, that are yes and amen for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray these things in His name. Amen.